Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Jeff Gomez, CEO of Starlight Runner Entertainment. This is going to be a special show, Jim, because I'm not nearly as sharp as some of your other guests. But uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, great to have you. Don't uh, don't uh, sell yourself short, Jeff. We've known each other for I don't know how many years, <laughs> a, a while, and you definitely got a lot to add to the conversation. Uh, well, thank you. Anyway, uh, Starlight Runner is the world's leading producer of transmedia entertainment franchises and corporate narratives. They have worked with the top studio executives and producers in Hollywood on many of the most successful entertainment brands, extending them across multiple media platforms. Some of their projects have included Pirates of the Caribbean, Star Wars, Men in Black, Spider-Man, and James Cameron's revolutionary film Avatar. Jeff, could you give me an example uh, where you did your magic on uh, one of these projects. Wow. Oh, is that all? <laughs> no. Um, one of the preeminent was with, with something like Pirates of the Caribbean, where we are uh, approached by the Disney company because the first uh, Pirates movie did so well. But it was an unexpected hit. And, and the Disney company wanted to do sequels, but weren't exactly sure how to leverage the intellectual property across all the different divisions of the company. They hadn't made very much money in licensing and merchandising the original Pirates movie. They just weren't ready for it. So our job was to uh, figure out what made Pirates so successful. What was the mechanism in the story, besides the movie stars, of course, that could be leveraged uh, across uh, uh, comic books and video games and novels um, uh, the things that would allow for Disney to capitalize on the property. And so our magic was really to determine the essence of what made the Pirates universe special and to work with uh, divisions like Imagineering on the theme park ride or uh, their interactive division on the massive multiplayer online game to make sure that the essence of Pirates, what made that movie so much fun, was infused into these different products. Cool. I had no idea that it was a surprise hit because truthfully, not being a Pirates fan myself, I haven't really <laughs> dug into it. But my favorite nephew swears it's the greatest series in his lifetime. And he's like, wow. And, he, and, <laughs> and he's like 33, 34 years old. Right. And he goes, it's the Lord of the Rings for my generation. The way he describes it. And he knows I'm a Lord of the Rings fanatic. So uh, it couldn't get much higher praise on you know the, the broader concept. Well, maintaining the integrity and continuity of that rich universe as it develops into all these different spinoffs and, and product lines was our job. And we came to appreciate it the same way he did. Um, it, it is kind of this epic fantasy that deserves to be kind of respected and, and maintained. Yeah, this is sort of a side question, but it just struck me. How do you keep it from getting cheesy, or as they say in the series TV world, jumping the shark? It's actually very difficult because uh, in, in Hollywood, the visionary is still the director 
perhaps the the producer and uh, and sometimes they don't quite have their finger on what exactly made these movies special so sometimes we're allowed to uh, a kind of speak truth to power <laughs> and go you know this screenplay doesn't quite nail it and sometimes we're told to shut up <laughs> and let them do it and so we have watched uh, sequels to the works that we've worked on maybe not be quite as good as the previous one it's a part of the job yeah well those of us who go to movies a lot know that happens all the time <laughs> but sometimes you get a you know a big surprise like i still think terminator 2 was the greatest one in the terminator sequence right that was awesome yeah in fact i'm going to go watch it again right before i go see the new terminator uh, Jim, I knew you were a nerd, just not this kind of nerd. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> I'm, I'm basically all kinds of nerd. In fact, I think I'm going to coin a new word, polynerdishness. I'm with you on the polynerdishness. Yeah, exactly. Uh, as I did a little research before this episode, one of the terms that keeps popping up about you and your company is transmedia storytelling. Could you tell us what that is? That's a fancy a term for, you know, being a nerd. <laughs> well, think about um, your experience of reading Marvel or DC comic books, how every so often Iron Man can show up in Spider-Man's comic book <laughs> or, or Spider-Man can team up with the Fantastic Four. Uh, those were were story worlds, um, uh, those Marvel and DC comic book universes, and um, and in doing so, there was a kind of intertextuality. There was a, the ability for characters to visit one another and still have a kind of persistent universe uh, uh, going on there. Uh, when I was young, I wanted this for the Godzilla movies. I wanted this for Planet of the Apes. <laughs> and and I was often disappointed because um, the licensing and merchandising of these properties was done in a kind of casual fashion and, and nobody was interested in making sure that Cornelius spoke uh, in the same manner in the comic books as he did in the movies. <laughs> the Planet of the Apes cartoon show had dinosaurs in it. What are dinosaurs really doing on the planet of the apes? Uh, it's <laughs> I couldn't deal. <laughs> That's because those those worlds didn't have integrity. Transmedia storytelling is the methodology to take a story world and disperse it across multiple media platforms in ways that allow for it to retain a kind of canonicity. Um, there's a continuity from one medium to the next. The quintessential transmedia universe is Star Wars. Right now, uh, if you read a Star Wars comic book, it is in canon. That's the official story, an official story set in the Star Wars universe, as are the novels, the movies, the animated series. And when you assemble these pieces of the story world, they fit together, uh, sometimes almost perfectly, and that gives the fan pleasure because everything that they're encountering, everything they're paying for counts as an addition to uh, the story world. Uh, my job was to kind of introduce this concept or help introduce this concept to the Hollywood studios and the big video game companies as a method to uh, increase fan loyalty and sell more stuff. But also to create a kind of um, 
uh, integrity to these story worlds as massive uh, entertainment expressions, almost like artistic expressions, if you will. Well, the world creation, uh, world builder function is an artistic creation, I'd argue, as someone who's fooled around a little bit with uh, building a few games over the years. The first thing you have to do is envision your world in either greater or lesser detail. It sounds like transmedia storytelling starts with building or extracting from a first property a, a world and then making it rich enough that you can say whether X is canon or not. Is, is, that, is that a reasonable take? I knew you were my kind of guy, Jim Rutt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and of course, the thing that I nerd out the most on is Lord of the Rings. I've read the trilogy 37 times. Holy mackerel. And I'm getting ready to uh, read it for the 38th time. The weird thing is you get something new out of it every time, believe it or not. But Tolkien, as real fans know, spent many, many years, decades, creating this world first before he wrote the book, right? And in fact, that's correct. Lord of the Rings is embedded in a much larger narrative, Cimmerillion, et cetera, and some other little bits and pieces and things that were never published. And so he's, you know, invented languages, invented genealogies, and it's all reasonably consistent. He, in some sense, he may, might be more or less the father of this approach. Uh, fairly close to it, uh, Jim. I, I actually, um, I started with Tolkien. I started with The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And uh, this was when I was very young, but old enough to understand that uh, everything I'd read up until that moment felt like the author was just making up a story. <laughs> with The Hobbit and, and Lord of the Rings, the richness of the uh, characters, their histories, their genealogies, their cultures, mixed with this extraordinarily passionate quest narrative that really can touch your heart because of how Frodo and his fellowship suffer and pull so hard to, to get this, this job done. Uh, that combination of things felt absolutely palpable and real to me and, and made me think, I need to know how he did this. It was like a magic trick. How did you convince me that this fantasy world is absolutely real as I'm experiencing it on the page? And that started my own quest to understand the engines of narrative, how story is put together uh, across the world and throughout history. Very interesting. Uh, your narrative is seems to be the base on which you have built. Could you define exactly what it is you mean when you say narrative? Narrative, the way uh, we see it at Starlight Runner, is slightly different from story. Um, story concerns itself with plot and theme and, and characters and so forth. But narrative, to us, is the foundational structure of story. These are the elements that allow for the story to unfold in any direction, uh, backwards or forwards through time. Uh, but it also allows for the communication between the audience and story. You see, I already was kind of getting in touch with, um, with the 21st century way back in 1979, 1980. And I came to understand that the, uh, through the internet, uh, and my early dabblings with it, that the audience was going to have uh, a role in a narrative structure, that the narrative is going to have to acknowledge 
the participation of the audience if it's going to survive into the 21st century. So narrative isn't just the uh, structure of story, how story is built. It also takes into consideration the response and the participation of the audience. Um, uh, so narrative is a river uh, that we as audience members are tributaries into. Wow. I, I love that. I guess some of the examples of that two-wayness, first one I remember, I'm sure there must have been earlier ones, was the whole phenomenon of Trekkies and the conventions of Star Trek fans, etc., and uh, how that fed back into the narrative, I expect. Is that a good example of that two-way nature? It is absolutely a, a great example and a, a kind of foundational example. I mean, before Star Trek, we brought our Lone Ranger decoder rings I mean, maybe not me personally. That is even a little bit before my time. We could dress up as the shadow. <laughs> but with, with Star Trek, there was so little of it, right? Uh, and, and we were so in love with it that we began to, to manufacture content <laughs> around it and mail it to, a, to one another in, through snail mail. <laughs> um, uh, so these are, that's, this is the beginning of fanfic or fan fiction. And, and ultimately, these networks of fans who, who somehow got in touch with one another, somehow recognized that, that we were scattered across the United States, uh, began to say, you know what, why don't we kind of gather together to talk about this? And, and those initial Star Trek conventions in the very early 1970s uh, were the result. And, and that uh, birthed the, the first fandom, but also uh, kind of the first truly transmedia effort. Perfect. I still remember how pissed off I was when they canceled Star Trek. I go, what the fuck? The only TV <laughs> show that's actually worth watching and they cancel it? Wow! <laughs> 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 and of course, you know, because it was the first, you know, there was no uh, Jeff Gomez around in those days. And I'm sure you've read some of the uh, Star Trek spinoff novels and stuff. Some of them really sucked, right? <laughs> but, uh, well, yes. <laughs> but the maintenance of, of that passion um, allowed for Star Trek to survive, you know, six or seven very lonely years in the wilderness uh, until Star Wars uh, uh, ignited this fan interest in, in cosmic space movies. And Star Wars, uh, of course, um, uh, was the first. But you better believe Paramount Pictures ran uh, into the studio and, and started shooting a, a Star Trek movie uh, to, to bring that back. Um, it wouldn't have done that without the support of the fans. Interesting. What's well, actually, I'm going to just throw one of my little favorite topics in here before I move on to the next topic, which is Star Trek or Star Wars? <laughs> Which one are you? This is going to touch on some of the things we're going to be talking about. It cannot be underestimated how deeply influential Star Trek was for me. I'm a Puerto Rican kid in the projects of the Lower East Side in the late 1960s. And this show came on the air, unlike almost any other show, uh, depicting uh, people who looked like the people around me, people who had names like mine, um, in space, <laughs> in the distant future, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, worthy of respect 
even worthy of being a villain if you count uh, Ricardo Maltabong as as Khan. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, formidable, formidable villain. And you mix that with concepts of, like Spock's logic or infinite diversity and infinite combinations, which I think is one of the most wonderful story world philosophies uh, you could ever encounter in, in all of, of fiction. That was was deeply meaningful to me. The fact that these characters negotiated with their antagonists instead of simply blasting them out of the sky. And they did that once in a while, too. It really, really helped to, to set my frame of mind. Star Wars was deeply influential, too. But it, it's, its simplicity and it's, it, the, the polarity of the franchise... Uh, good and evil and, and that sort of thing. It, it, as I grew older, it, it grew a little too simple for me. I do like uh, uh, what they're, they seem to be experimenting with more recently in the transmedia Star Wars franchise, where the force is really kind of this spectrum of, you know, all kinds of behaviors and attitudes. And, and, uh, and maybe they'll resolve Star Wars in a way that makes it a more interesting and uh, collective kind of uh, property from now on. Oh, I love your analysis. I mean, I just tell people, I'm a Star Trek guy, right? <laughs> and I leave it at that. Though I do enjoy the Star Wars movies. I see them all. Though I guess there was that, there was that one series with that goofy character, the, the second trilogy that sucks so bad. I think I did not watch the last of the three, right? <laughs> You're going to get nasty emails. <laughs> Ah, sue me, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's the that's Jar Jar Binks. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. Jar Jar Binks. Like, what the hell? Who came up with that? Right? I'm sure that was not Jeff Gomez, right? <laughs> um, well, there, there is a defense of Jar Jar, but I don't know if you want to get into it. <laughs> I'm not. I don't quite go there. Another little sidebar. I hadn't really intended to ask this, but I'm going to anyway. Where do you think is the a really rich fan fiction community that, let's say, uh, middle-class baby boomers and Gen Xers probably don't even know about. What would you say is, is a great example of that that's probably outside the view of people like me? There are uh, a fascinating collectives of, of fan fiction. Um, it's unbelievable what some people refer to as boy bands. Uh, bands like One Direction uh, have these ardent fan bases that have written uh, reams and reams, I mean, gigabytes of fiction, uh, usually involving homosexual relationships between band members or, or uh, uh, band members having relationships with fans, uh, uh, very soap operatic, uh, uh, epic uh, uh, storylines involved with these kids, as well as uh, things like um, uh, K-pop bands and, and, and so forth. Uh, it's, there's oceans of it. In television, uh, believe it or not, Supernatural, the uh, CW television series, has a colossal um, <laughs> amount of fanfic devoted to those two brothers and their adventures. Cool. 
I had no idea. Yeah, I almost, <laughs> ne- I almost never watch anything that has advertising in it. So I miss. Uh, <laughs> I try hard to immunize myself against uh, bad memes being stuffed into my head. So I, I tend, I tend to miss things like network TV, and you know, I have to say, my musical tastes don't really go towards boy, boy bands or K-pop. But that you know, that's interesting. I mean, hey, I, that's I, my I, job, Jim. That's my job, and I have a TiVo <laughs> still. I, I re- a real live brand TiVo? Uh, uh, yep. <laughs> the latest. Me, I'm a Roku guy. And uh, even when I travel, I carry my what I call my traveling Roku in my uh, gadget bag. And I can generally hook up my Roku up with one of my little adapters to the hotel TV. And so I don't have to watch the crapple and deal with their hideous user interface. <laughs> See, if I did that, I'd never get anything done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Another bit of terminology I saw, especially in the more recent materials that I uh, reviewed before the show, is a concept that you guys call collective journey. Could you explain that? Gosh, um, uh, uh, Jim, the, the collective journey work is um, is truly, I, I thought transmedia uh, was going to be kind of my signature work. And, and here I am with collective journey. And it's... Um, uh, it's something that's so exciting for me. Back in the uh, in the 1990s, I was a video game developer. I had developed some Nintendo 64 video games, and um, a, a company called Acclaim Entertainment approached me about building a massively multiplayer online game. This was early in that format, and uh, and so I, there wasn't all that much to compare it to. There was Ultima Online. I don't. I don't know if you remember Ultima. I probably still have an account on that. Yeah, uh, EverQuest, <laughs> Ultima, all those early ones. Go. Yeah, hell that yeah, was it. hell yeah. Sure. So I, I looked at uh, at those games. I had not been a part of that. I did Dungeons and Dragons. So so we were telling stories around the table. Um, there were tangible little uh, miniatures that you could move about, and uh, and you can engage in in kind of dramatic uh, storytelling face to face, and and there was an emotional component to tabletop gaming that I found missing when uh, when I went into the worlds of Ultima and EverQuest. In fact, uh, I noticed that uh, pretty soon after I showed up in those worlds, I'd get myself killed. <laughs> you know, and uh, and I noticed that that was a a, a fairly pervasive uh, problem. So here you are in, in a situation where there's an opportunity to tell a a massive collective narrative where each participant could somehow count for for moving the story of this world along. But what we were stuck with due to all kinds of limitations, but I think predominantly a limitation of imagination, is the, um, is the fact that you were basically going to this fantasy world to be a member of the audience. If you didn't get instantly killed, all you're really doing is kind of walking around looking at things and hoping that you can, I don't know, slaughter a monster or something like that every once in a, a long while. Uh, a generation treasure. It just wasn't that satisfying. It was a movie in which we were all extras. And, uh, and I started to think about what, what if there were a way for, for everyone to have a rich story, 
um, who was in that world, something that was meaningful and had some kind of impact in that world. Well, I suggested this with some documentation to Acclaim Entertainment, and they told me uh, to go away <laughs> because, of course, uh, to do that would have been to uh, flip the table upside down and, and start from scratch and, and create an entirely new uh, format for gaming. They weren't prepared to do that. They just wanted to do their Ultima game. Uh, that, by the way, never manifested. After I left, it, it eventually shut down. But I thought about that for a long time. Then, as the years progress, and, and I began to notice how uh, the internet was giving fans a voice, right? So first in the 90s, if you had some kind of genre property, there was going to be fans to complain about it and fans to adore it and fans to argue over every aspect of it, right? Um, uh, there was the bronze for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, these uh, uh, online uh, message boards and, and things like that, message boards for Marvel and DC Comics. And that was interesting because uh, I was a part of a comic book company and we would read those messages and we would adjust the content in our comic books at Valiant Comics. That was really interesting. That was, to, to me, signified that an individual fan somewhere uh, could voice their opinion and impact the business plan, <laughs> the creative strategy of an entire company. Little did I know <laughs> that, that it would be just a few short years later that um, uh, um, many people would get together and, and voice their opinions online and alter the course of the way politics happen. You know, vote a black man into the White House, <laughs> you know, um, uh, generate an Arab Spring. This is a, um, a, a method uh, that seemed to mystify all the people around me. But for me, it was, hey, we're, in, we're all in this massive multiplayer online game, and what we are doing and saying count. I don't have to be uh, the white savior uh, coming in to, to uh, uh, kill the villain, grab the treasure, and save my community, you know, save the world. Um, I could just have a voice that uh, uh, collectively uh, combines with other voices and alters the course of the narrative. I didn't see a map for this in the Joseph Campbellian hero's journey. Joseph Campbell uh, mapped out this kind of monomyth, the story that all cultures have told themselves from the dawn of time. Back to Gilgamesh, right? I remember it. There you go. Absolutely. I read my Joseph Campbell until I eventually threw it against the wall because he had too much numerology in it. <laughs> yeah, well, a little of that. But but really, I mean, I, I, I have enormous respect for Campbell and, and his research. And really, it was my, my quarrel isn't with Joseph Campbell. It was with the kind of co-opting of the, the hero's journey narrative cycle, those steps, the call, the refusal of the call, the mentor, the threshold guardian, you, you know, the, the, those standard beats that you see in, in every Hollywood movie. There was a kind of Hollywoodization of the hero's journey that I progressively got more and more uncomfortable with, especially 
with the rise of, of social media and this global uh, uh, network of pervasive communication. Why? Because um, the hero's journey cycle emerged out of narratives that made their cultures right. Okay, so um, there was uh, these are the stories of rightness. Uh, uh, Stories are are built to teach us right from from the dawn of time. That's the role of story. And if we adhere to that, that's fine uh, until uh, Hollywood becomes the epicenter of story. Then Hollywood's version of right and wrong. Hollywood's version of the archetypal hero is going to stand and be kind of, you know, distributed to the entire planet. And, um, and while that was fine for, for some years, more recently, um, the entire planet gained a voice. <laughs> um, and, and the entire planet wants to see itself in these uh, movies and television shows. Uh, the entire planet wants to be sure that we understand that heroes don't have to have white skin and blonde hair, that certain very narrow uh, depictions of right and wrong are not necessarily the whole world's interpretation of right and wrong. You know, the American way is, is not the entire planet's way. Well, um, we need to understand uh, how to tell stories in a world where we now have global television networks like Amazon and, and Netflix. Um, this new modality of storytelling, collective journey, the uh, observation that I'm making in response to this um, uh, a kind of white savior uh, hero's journey narrative. Ah, it's a great transition point. Because I, I noticed, again, on your materials and as I was doing some research, that while the big brands make the big bucks, uh, you are also been working on applying your techniques to educational and geopolitical causes. In fact, the audience for this show is probably more interested in those than they are in the ins and outs of, uh, of Hollywood. Sounds to me like this collective journey idea of yours is made to order for political, geopolitical, and educational applications. It's really where we began to haunt it and prove its efficacy. Uh, yes, um, and you're right. There's another aspect to what Starlight Runner has done over the years that is not uh, very well uh, discussed, not, not publicized. We don't seek too much publicity around it. And it is uh, these geopolitical uh, transmedia population activations. Could you tell us about some of those, at least one of those in some detail? Sure. Well, the story is that um, we were going about our business, working on projects like uh, Avatar and Transformers and and, and so forth. And um, it was uh, uh, shortly after the election of Barack Obama that um, we got a phone call from the (laughs) Department of Defense. And um, I I was like, hello? (laughs) And, And they said, listen, the new administration is uh, studying various uh, think tank files on uh, asymmetrical warfare. It is a problem that uh, is, you know, is happening at an unprecedented level at, at this point. And um, uh, President Obama wants to wants to wrap it up and uh, extricate ourselves from this kind of situation. Uh, we're looking for uh, ways to. Um, 
uh, to do that effectively. And we came upon this term transmedia uh, when looking through some materials from the Aspen Institute. I said, well, who mentioned transmedia? Because I certainly wasn't there. <laughs> and they said, uh, a gentleman named Jordan Greenhall. Ah, okay. <laughs> a friend of the Jim Rutt show, I understand. Yeah, Jordan and I go way back, right? And we've been co-conspirators and all kinds of crazy stuff over the years. Uh, so now it all ties together. See, it, this, it becomes a transmedia <laughs> a story right now. Jordan was in the audience at MIT when I first uh, was talking about the efficacy of participative narrative and transmedia storytelling. And he was fascinated with it and uh, wrote me. And, and we began this correspondence and we eventually became tremendous friends and, um, and he uh, uh, kind of helped me to start thinking about applications of transmedia outside of the conventional kind of nerd space. And, um, and he was the one who, who had mentioned it as a, a possible application in geopolitical situations. Of course, the first instinct for the government uh, uh, about that was to weaponize it. And, and that's what I was uh, confronted with which was very, a, a very sobering situation. You know, could you imagine? I'm, uh, here I am uh, uh, playing with transmedia storytelling and, and creating entertainment with it. And these guys are saying, well, can transmedia be used in the theater of, of combat? And my response actually, Jim, was uh, uh, that I, I wasn't particularly interested in pursuing that because... Uh, in order to weaponize transmedia storytelling, you needed to remove the component that made it transmedia, which or, or special, <laughs> which was authentic dialogue, a transparency. And uh, when you remove that, you get super propaganda. You get multilateral narrative, uh, which could be used to uh, foment chaos and create confusion amongst a population. And that didn't interest me at all. In fact, I'd been observing that methodology in Russia at the time and thought that it was um, actually kind of frightening um, uh, to, to use story to uh, confuse and antagonize and exhaust an entire nation of, of people so that you could assert uh, authoritarianism over them. So I said, no, <laughs> I'm not interested. And I said, however, I do believe that you can use authentic transmedia storytelling to get people to organize themselves better and to pursue progressive, positive uh, issues in a way that um, could generate uh, significant uh, positive results. And they said, well, We'll pay you a lot less, <laughs> <laughs> but let's let's look into that, shall we? <laughs> and um, and we did an experiment in Afghanistan that resulted in tapping into these these towns in in Afghanistan, tapping into an ancient uh, mythic uh, kind of tradition where it, uh, if a stranger crosses into the town, they're protected no matter what. Uh, collectively, the whole town has to get together and stand up for that person. So, so that person is safe so long as they are in the town, and that um, uh, actually uh, saved um, uh, some soldiers' lives in Afghanistan. 
Um, there was a Mark Wahlberg movie where, where there's a sequence where that, that actually happened. It was a depiction of an actual event. So that was successful. And so we began working with the DOD and United States Special Operations Command and, and other uh, branches of intelligence to, um, and the military to, uh, to promote uh, a transmedia population activation elsewhere in the world. Interesting. That's, I'm going to come back to this and talk about Jordan and some of the things he and I have worked on, et cetera. But I'm going to pick up on a line you just said about seeing what was going on in Russia. You know, you're a good guy, but, you know, what about bad guys using these same techniques? You know, how would you suggest that people become aware that these techniques exist and can be used for evil? And how do we detect them and how do we fight against them? That's been uh, really one of my major concerns over the past uh, a few years because I'm, I'm extremely concerned about the fact that techniques that were once used to, to generate joy <laughs> and, and to, to foment uh, a community, fan communities and things like that, in some ways have been corrupted and, and turned into uh, uh, scenarios that are promoting I- extremism internal conflict, strife, uh, dividing uh, and conquering uh, entire peoples. And um, uh, I think it's vital that we recognize this. What we have to look for, essentially, is inauthentic uh, communication. That's the bottom line. If story is coming at us in a fast and furious way from a single source, and those stories have traits like, like the fact that they can contradict themselves, sometimes between morning, noon, and night, or they um, are um, uh, divisive, if they're deeply negative, if they're attacking, if they're um, uh, laying claim to uh, our darker impulses, then uh, we would know that there is an inauthenticity behind their application. Um, it, it's just not the, the way to promote unity and a progressive uh, direction for society. It's easy to say that it's much more difficult to sell, tell somebody who's reacting to it <laughs> and, and lost in it and, and actually is enjoying it. It's hard to tell that person, you know, you're being gaslighted or you're allowing yourself to be manipulated by false memes and this invasion of divisive narratives. Fortunately and, and unfortunately, I mean, your whole career is based on it, right? We are suckers for narrative. Probably going back to sitting around the campfire and hunter-gatherer bands and various people took their turns either telling new stories or probably telling the old classics with a few twists and spins that have been passed down through the generations for a thousand years. And so, you know, that's been a big part of our conviviality at the level of the small bands of humans. And so we are good at that. We like that. We're suckers for it. And so it can indeed be weaponized. And as you know, you're describing all these attributes, two examples came to mind. I'd like to get your reactions to both of them. The first and perhaps the purest example, I would call the Bannon-Trump narrative. You talk to me about that a little bit. Well, it, it's uh, chaos is a ladder. <laughs> In the 1990s, a gentleman named uh, Vladislav Surkov, uh, a Russian ad a- a- agent, a-, a guy who was kind of a failed science fiction author who was in the advertising industry, he visited Paris, France, 
and was struck by an avant-garde art movement that was going on at the time. Uh, essentially, you entered into the gallery and the gallery was jammed with all kinds of pieces of communication, videos, uh, signs, neon lights and, and things like that, and it was all flickering at you. And it was bombarding you with um, a very provocative imagery, um, uh, uh, sometimes very enraging in imagery. There was racist uh, material in there. Um, it, it essentially was there to kind of discombobulate you and get you upset and, and kind of uh, keep you on edge all the way through until by the time you were done with the exhibit, um, you came out exhausted <laughs> and, and kind of almost unmoored from reality. He thought that was fascinating. And he went back to the Russian Kremlin and said, you know, you know, we can use this. You know, uh, uh, we are in a, a situation where glasnost is failing, where the Russian economy is on the verge of collapse, where the people are extremely restless, and where Vladimir Putin is not firmly gripping onto power. If we use these techniques, we can kind of freak out our own citizenry and then assert an overriding theme, that of management, that of the fact that we're going to take care of things. And Jim, here was the pattern. Uh, see if you recognize it. <laughs> These narratives began to be communicated across uh, Russian media. And of course, because there is such a grasp on, on Russian media by the Russian government, it was a little easier even than here. But um, uh, these kind of strange, uh, contradictory uh, narratives began to be dispersed across Russia. And at first, they seemed obviously fake. It seemed to the average Russian person that the Kremlin were a bunch of clowns, that, that they were behaving in bizarre and silly ways. Then Serkov hired groups or fermented, fermented uh, uh, anti-Muslim groups to, to be on the rise, uh, uh, neo-fascists and, and things like that, sometimes in ways that actually allowed for them to clash in the streets until the Russian uh, police forces descended on them and, and brought them under control. This seemed bizarre and frightening to the Russian people. Then the attitudes about uh, the levels of freedom or restrictions, um, uh, it, it, can we practice Orthodox Christianity or, or can we not? All of these uh, uh, crazy uh, contradictory uh, stories were bombarding the Russian people. So uh, yeah, at first they laughed, but then they got angry and then they got exhausted. And then w within uh, five or six years, they said, you know what? We give up. <laughs> just, just manage it. Just take care of it. We, we, um, uh, we're withdrawing from this conversation. And uh, Putin um, uh, firmed his grasp, the uh, oligarchical network, settled into power, and Steve Bannon was studying every step of this. He, uh, he was a student, in essence, of, of Serkov. This is something that worked, uh, that, that Bannon understood, and certainly 
that uh, our president uh, uh, fully, as a, uh, as a figure of the media, fully and deeply understands. You think Trump himself, you know, my read, and I could be entirely wrong here, is that Trump is some kind of natural genius at rabble rousing, right? And he also has this amazing ability to be completely unconnected to reality. Like, so as you were talking about people that would say red in the morning and blue in the afternoon, Trump does that with no uh, uh, psychological stress whatsoever right? Five equals four, four equals three. Okay. And he has this uh, amazing talent. Uh, And then Bannon was the one who then weaponized it with these insights you're talking about. And, uh, you know, we talk about Marxist-Leninism. I kind of think of the Trump administration as Bannonist uh, Trumpism, right? It's an an odd amalgam of of, uh, Trump's amazing idiot savant abilities and sort of psychological peculiarities plus Bannon's insights. Does that make any sense to you? To to a degree, uh, uh, certainly. Um, However, you have to believe that that there is some kind of of roadmap uh, being followed by the president himself. Whether a lot of it is intuitive or not, there is a specificity with regard to the kinds of narratives he's pursuing, a specificity to the strategies that he's running through that are yielding uh, fairly specific results (laughs) and seem to be uh, consciously directed. Now, again, whether he's following uh, some kind of instruction book or uh, intuiting them himself, uh, I couldn't tell you, but but the, the results speak for themselves. You're seeing him following the uh, almost the checklist uh, that was developed by the Russians. That's interesting, very interesting. It's not a it's not that complicated, <laughs> sadly. Yeah, I was going to say. And here we go to the weaponization. Now, here's another one that fits the prototype, though with a very different constituency and intent. At least it strikes me as following many of the things that you that you enumerated, and that's the extinction rebellion. Yes, fascinating. That's an example of a spontaneous, self-organized social system, right? Um, it's it's transnational, which I think is fascinating. A lot of the ones that we followed thus far have have remained uh, uh, national around the world, and it's interesting that it coalesced a- around a young girl, uh, a teenage girl who who found a, a very simple and direct way of telling that story. It, um, it seems to be building momentum based on the power of, of narrative, how easy it is to pick up on, and of course, how easy it is for people in this day and age to participate in uh, these kind of rivers of, of narrative, these kind of collective journeys. Yeah, and of course, they also, you know, they, they're pressing the, the piano keys for darkness very heavily, right? And saying a lot of things that aren't true that spin people up in terms of, ah, oh, you know, the world's going to end in 12 years, blah, blah, right? When And there's no nuance to the story at all. It's, it's very pruned down to be easy to digest, press all the negative buttons one can imagine, et cetera. Well, um, I, I think one can uh, account for the role of Malcolm X <laughs> um, as opposed to, to Martin Luther King. There is a, a kind of, in some progressive movements, there is this kind of extreme 
end of it that that does some of the rabble rousing and and does push things uh, forward, even if it sometimes borderlines on violence or or violent verbiage. Um, uh, so you know we allow for for some of that. But yes, there's been more of this kind of uh, extreme rhetoric uh, around the world, which concerns me when it comes to uh, uh, the rise in this kind of hyper-nationalism and authoritarianism. Extinction Rebellion is just an example of someone who's taken the template and adapted it to a different domain. And for at least partially a good purpose, right? I mean, we do have to deal with climate, though yes. you know, most of their prescriptions are non-realistic. They terrify people. When, you know, there's a lot of psychological research indicates that paralyzing people with fear is not the way to get people to take action. It's not. And so, you know, they've essentially taken the Russian playbook and adapted it to another domain and, and may well be doing more harm than good. It's hard to tell. Well, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to a time where uh, the world uh, changes its relationship with rhetoric, <laughs> because right now there's a little too much of this uh, extreme uh, application. Yeah, it's unfortunately, you know, we're suckers for narrative, but we are creatures of language above all else, right? My own field of cognitive science, cognitive neuroscience, the main thing that differentiates humans from chimps, let's say, is language or the thing that's just pre-language, which is symbols. And so the idea that humans are not going to be vulnerable to rhetoric, that's pretty hard to imagine. Well, let me ask you something, Jim, and I've been curious about this. It seems to me that um, right now, infusing as much meaning as possible into words <laughs> has been de rigueur. Um, and we see this on the left and the right. We see this in students on college campuses and, and, and things like that. I've wondered whether uh, it would pay for us to explore uh, diffusing language altogether <laughs> um, and, and placing uh, more distance between ourselves and words and recognizing words as just that, things that have uh, potentially no power at all so that um, we can get back to a level of decorum uh, that, that could allow for a more even keeled debate or a um, the ability not to be so uh, wounded and damaged by uh, a rhetoric. I get scared sometimes because if mythology is taught in school and, and the students uh, tell the professor, uh, I'm going to report you because you just talked about a myth where gods are raping each other and, and so forth, we could start to lose our, our grip on uh, understanding human nature and literature and, and the arts and, and, and things like that. Yeah, and it's happening. You know, uh, you know, my take on it is that we're becoming retribalized, right? You have these, you know, these factions like the wokes who, you know, do the kinds of things you just described. We have the alt-right, which have, the, have their own rhetoric and stories. And there's fundamentalist religious people of three or four different varieties. And their people are becoming more intensely tribal and interrelated into a closed model of discourse rather than having a broad social model of discourse in which we can agree to disagree and do so civilly. So, Jim, I'm, I'm actually hoping that this is a, a phase that we are all experiencing because of the absolutely free availability 
for us to express ourselves anonymously or, or not. Remember where I came from? I came from fandom. Uh, Star Wars fans hated Star Trek fans. <laughs> Absolutely. And in sports fandom, uh, there are these terrific rivalries. And and uh, and you can see fights and even riots take place because, uh, you know, fans are on uh, the, the sides of different sports teams. Um, uh, the reason those things could happen the way they happened was because uh, the, the fans were allowed essentially to network. They were put in direct contact with each other. Um, and so we're, we're given forums to kind of advocate for their tribes, right? Now, the entire planet has been given the opportunity to do that. And so we are uh, factionalizing. We are uh, uh, tribalizing across all these different subjects and so forth. The reason I have some optimism, Jim, is, is because um, there are children who are now growing up within this who are a bit more chill because they've always had a voice. I'm talking about Gen Z. I'm talking about kids 18 and under, roughly, um, maybe 1920. They've grown up with the free and clear ability uh, to just be on the internet. Yes, there's internet bullying and, and things like that, but generally um, uh, they're freely expressing themselves and don't seem to have this level of avarice and, um, and selfishness and, uh, and tribalism uh, amongst them, at least what we're observing. And we, we, that's part of my job is to, is to watch these things. So I'm hoping that as these young people come into prominence and, and start to help run the world, that we'll all get a little more chill. <laughs> So interestingly, uh, you know, you, you listen to people like Jonathan Haidt and some of the others who have been talking about what's going on on college campuses. Uh, the reports back seem to be that actually it's getting worse on college campuses, that this woke phenomena is just completely out of control. And, you know, the examples that you gave and that if anything, this tribalization is, is at least on college campuses. I can't say less for the non-college people, which, of course, people need to remember is two thirds of the country. Uh, but at least on college campuses, this pressure cooker of tribalization and you know, not just the wokes, but also the anti-wokes are also binding together with, you know, uh, becoming more and more inflammatory, etc. So I'm not sure that what we're seeing in the 18 to 21 year old crew actually bears that out. Your, your point is well taken. I do think that, that there's a lot of steam being let off in, in perhaps the wrong direction because young people feel that they are not able to uh, assert as best they can some national direction, <laughs> determine the outcomes of major elections and, and so forth. And so the, the small pond becomes the, the place where they um, are, are expressing their anxieties. But I also think that... Um, the generation gap is pretty much the largest one that we have ever seen in the history of humanity. <laughs> so these kids are communicating with one another and superpositioning themselves on, on the internet in, in all of these uh, interesting and complex ways. And uh, their professors, who may be uh, 10 or 20 years older than them, don't have access to any of that and, and have very little understanding for what amounts to an entirely different way of being 
with its own language, uh, with its own cultures, and this is creating uh, a friction in and of itself. Um, uh, this isn't, um, you know, some some hippie slang <laughs> from the 1960s. This is a, an entirely different way of being, and young people aren't being taught. Uh, they're not being taught media literacy in school, so. Uh, they're having a difficult time reaching across these divides to make uh, connections with older people and and professors and and other authority figures in the room uh, are not uh, attempting too much to figure out why uh, these kids think b- believe and behave this way uh, they're just judging them and and that creates more friction and of course Probably, uh, you know, the nature of the of essentially the fractal ability to organize at every level from the micro to the macro makes this much more confusing for the older folks. You know, back in my day, say, uh, you know, 19 in the 60s, we basically had three factions, the jocks, the hippies and the collegians. Right. It, it wasn't that hard to figure out which of the three you were in. And you know, maybe they were halfway in between. I was probably halfway between the hippies and the collegians. Right. But, you know, it's basically three big boxes today. There's a zoo billion levels at which people identify and organize, and it's multidimensional, intersectional, et cetera. So it's a much more difficult cognitive map for us poor old fogies to try to figure out. I'm going to call you on the Star Trek. <laughs> and, and what I want you to think about, okay, because it's easy to say, oh, these kids today. <laughs> but think about infinite diversity in infinite combinations. That's In some ways, that's happening right now. And if we step back far enough and look at the expression and look at their ways of communicating and look at the fact that they are enjoying being somewhere on various spectra (laughs) or spectrums, um, uh, that's beautiful in in a way. I, I like the fact that, that a child can, can walk into a school and say, I'm a they. <laughs> um, it's upsetting when they get angry with you for forgetting that they're a they <laughs> or, or what have you. But, um, but isn't that uh, fascinating uh, that, that we have become like the United Federation of Planets just on planet Earth? <laughs> yeah, I mean- and allowing for that, I can tell you both uh, f- firsthand and uh, through uh, close observation, particularly of this, this uh, Gen Z cohort, that that aspect allows for liberation. That aspect has, uh, has helped them to reduce the kinds of anxieties those of us, particularly those of us who were different in, in some way, uh, never got to experience in previous uh, generations. So there, there is some, uh, something wonderful about um, uh, what's, uh, what's going on today. Yeah, and I want to make clear, I was not hacking on the kids today. You know, I was actually uh, trying to make the distinction that the older folks looking back at this fractal world where everybody has a different way of positioning themselves in many dimensions is inherently a difficult gap to transcend. You know, not to say that, frankly, I'm with you. I think probably these more dimensions of freedom will end up good. Mm-hmm. Though, I suppose the one question mark I might put on it is, will we lose any sense of social coherence and will our society be strong enough to persevere against challengers who are more coherent than us? 
Wow, that's fascinating. I'm a little bit optimistic. I'm from New York, but I'm optimistic. We're going to get through this transition. This transition is bigger than the advent of radio or television or any broadcast uh, uh, medium. When we were all sitting in front of something and watching or listening to it, there were a very small number of people who were establishing our reality for us. And uh, uh, there wasn't much choice in terms of how we responded to that reality. Maybe a a small percentage of us um, uh, rebelled against it. Another small percentage of us uh, kind of super took advantage uh, of it and became uh, uh, people who took advantage of the system. But by and large, there was this age of broadcast that lasted for 150, 180 years um, uh, with the advent of mass media. Now, the printing press and so forth. Uh, Now we are in a new age, Jim. We're in the age of pervasive communication. And we are uh, attempting to find our footing. And uh, and when everyone's a broadcaster, things are going to get messed up and things are going to get confusing. And people, you know, have learned how to to try and, um, and fire cannons near the the murmuration of birds, <laughs> you know, uh, to kind of uh, uh, try and, and push us in, in certain directions. That's those, those multilateral stories like what happened in Russia, maybe what's happening here in the United States today. But we're going to get a grip, I believe. We're going to start to figure out what these methodologies are and how to kind of, you know, transcend them. And, um, and then our diversity uh, will become a a strength. I don't believe that we're going to diffuse ourselves out of existence. Uh, I I think we're going to be able to, uh, to get our act together. I like that. It's a good uh, thought, you know, hopeful enlightenment view, I would say, right? And think about, you know, who's our global competitors for who will, whose model will, will dominate the future. We have the Chinese on one hand, which is the absolute opposite, right? Uh, and, then, and then we have the Russians, which are essentially chaotic. And if we can maintain a disciplined but free, essentially the Enlightenment ideas, right, uh, we may be able to explore the opportunity space better than any of the people who are, we are in competition with. But Jim, in order to do that, we cannot submit ourselves to a, a multipolar world. If uh, uh, nations like, uh, like China and Russia become dominant, if the United States cedes power and influence to those two poles, then our voice doesn't become the one that is the shining beacon. Our voice becomes sublimated to the cash that's coming at us from China, uh, or the, uh, the power that's coming at us from Russia. And so we have to be careful about remaining not just great storytellers, but aspirational uh, uh, storytellers and aspirational people. If we start compromising and sublimating ourselves to authoritarianism, we're going to have major problems because then who's there to be a role model uh, for the way the rest of the world behaves? I guess I'm not quite following that. Could you, uh, I mean, Uh what should we be looking out for to do and to not do 
when we're in a world in which, you know, our model, or let's call it the, the model which you very eloquently described before, where everybody can find their own space in a high dimensional universe mm-hmm. versus other models, which are much more constrained. Could you have imagined a world or, or a, a United States where the NBA had to quell <laughs> people who were advocating for freedom? Yeah. <laughs> it never would have been thinkable. Yeah. Uh, just a few years ago, I work in the video game business. Uh, Activision Blizzard punished a player in, in its tournament for advocating for a free Hong Kong. <laughs> Hopefully we're going to get through this. I mean, I think that the American people should stand up and should start boycotting any company that does that. I know it's, those companies are very tempted to not antagonize that you know billion-person market in China, but that's a long way off before they'll make any money there. They can lose their ass right now if all decent Americans would say, we're going to boycott anybody who plays that game, who tries to suppress free speech in response to complaints from the Chinese. I like to see a mass movement start where we just do not accept that from our American companies. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that movement uh, didn't have to start because our leaders said that is unacceptable? <laughs> just as Americans, that's that behavior is unacceptable, and told the NBA, "Would you stop that?" <laughs> and, and so forth. Or, or for example. Uh, the fact that so much of the uh, real estate in my city um, is is now owned by uh, factions outside of this country, and and their influence, their demands, uh, some of which are unlawful, some of which are not in the interest of my city, but have to be acceded to because they own huge numbers of blocks of of real estate in in my city. That's an insidious, you know, incursion into our integrity. Absolutely. And you know, fortunately, real estate's a good one, right? Mm. Because they can't take it with them, right? They act like a bunch of assholes. We say, go back where you came from. We're taking your real estate, you clowns, right? <laughs> uh, you know, that's something that people could do should they get themselves sufficiently well organized. That's why it never bothers me when people say, oh, yeah, the Chinese are buying up this or that. Well, well, they get too obnoxious. We'll just kick them the hell out and just take it back. Right. But, and yet that's right now, that would be incredibly difficult to do uh, because they they own so much that to kick them out would mean those buildings get emptied out. Well, who's going to who's going to pay those rents? Who's going to own uh, th- those massive multi-million dollar apartments and, and, and so forth? Uh, it would be easier to just kind of quietly give them what they wanted which uh, uh, corrupts our politics, corrupts our civic situation here. And it's, it's, it can be not that easy to do just to simply say, uh, beat it. Yeah. So, so these, are, um, these are forces that are pressing on us that if our leadership is not holding to the foundational values, the American narrative, uh, if, if that kind of collapses on itself, then uh, we could easily be overwhelmed by these techniques, these strategies, these stringencies, these different ways of, of being uh, that could cause our fall. Um, and, and those are things that Jordan Greenhall and Daniel Schmachtenberg are, are really concerned about, that I'm a, a little bit a part of that group uh, that, that has that concern about. 
what direction the, the world is going in. Yeah, indeed. Let's make that our last topic. We'll talk a little bit about Game B. Mm. If you know Jordan and you know Daniel, then you knew about Game B. Sure. Actually, uh, Jordan and I and about 20 other people actually cooked up Game B back in 2013. And we developed a fair amount of doctrine. Then it didn't really seem to be going anywhere. And we all kind of went our way and did our own little Game B-ish stuff or not. Frankly, I didn't mostly. I worked on other things. But it seems like Game B is coming back again. There's a surprising amount of traffic on Twitter, on Facebook, etc. And uh, for those listeners who don't know what it is, you can go check out the uh, Game B group on Facebook or check out Game B, all one word, hashtag on Twitter, and you'll see a surprising amount of traffic. And essentially what Game B is, is it's still a fairly hazy and rough attempt to define a new social operating system for at least the civilization and maybe for the world that keeps us from committing echocide, which we appear to be on, you know, despite what I said about Extinction Rebellion, the basic idea is correct that if we don't reform our ways, we will destroy our, the carrying capacity of the earth and there'll be a massive die-off. And we need to find new ways of being that aren't I mean, frankly, these jackasses that have these 22,000 square foot townhouses, you know, apartments in New York, <laughs> you know, they should really just be taken out and shot, right? Or at least oh, be nice. <laughs> put, put, put on a barge and sent back from whence they came. <laughs> and uh, 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 a, a, a garbage barge at that. And then uh, fill those places full of the homeless, right? How many uh -huh. homeless people are in the United States, right? Mm. No reason we couldn't do that if we had the will. But you know, that's just an example of some radical thinking outside the box. The whole idea of Game B is to let's start with a blank sheet of paper. No, we want to avoid ecocide and a major die-off and collapse. And, and essentially, we want to create the operating system, the values, the way we react with each other, the ethos uh, to make a truly better world. In fact, the original Game B, we had a concept of, what do we say when we want the Game B world? It's basically it's to create a society, you know, this is, I think, very simple but powerful, that we would be happy to live in ourselves, truly happy. Right and proud to leave to our children. I don't think we can say either of those things about our current world, at least most people can't. And so we start with that. At this stage, it's still preliminary, but it struck me when I was doing my research that you build imaginary worlds. Yes. You know, at some level, that's, that's your superpower. Game B is in its own struggling, early, uh, partial kind of way, trying to think about what a new world would look like. Of course, we have the constraint in the Game B space that we're operating in the real world, right? Yes. When you're developing an imaginary world for a movie, you have a lot more degrees of freedom. But let's jam a bit. You know, what are some of the things that people should be thinking about when we're designing? Designing is too strong a word because it has that utopian flavor, you know, just follow these sure. directions. We know that's not the way it's going to be. It's going to unfold organically in a network basis, partially and experimentally and evolutionarily. What advice would you give to the Game B world from your experience in narrative around the collective journey mm -hmm. uh, and even transmedia might be useful as this community of people tries to invent the future, a better future than the road we're on otherwise? I certainly think uh, Game B is fascinating. Um, uh, some of it floats a little above my head at moments. <laughs> and, and the story sometimes is not quite well told because you have all of these extremely brilliant people uh, talking to each other about it and, and uh, the ability to enroll 
uh, people who may not quite be as brilliant, but still could have power and influence, that, that hasn't quite gotten there. <laughs> so the story needs to be told a little better <laughs> to start with uh, in order for greater influence and success to be achieved. But I do think, uh, Jim, that um, it is possible once we have a strong idea, a powerful foundational narrative to execute. The reason is that our transmedia population activations didn't stop in Afghanistan. We've done these in Mexico, in Colombia, in Canada, uh, and in Australia. And, um, and for the most part, they have been uh, remarkably successful. Uh, when a compelling story is combined with some simple training, the, the uh, uh, media literacy, the ability to use uh, uh, social media to help uh, foment uh, social self-organization. These are, are, can be good things and, and can uh, result in a, a kind of spontaneous self-organized social system that affects change, that, that can move uh, uh, whole societies in a positive direction. With Plan B, one of the ideas that, that I might contribute to, to this, uh, besides telling the story better and, and thinking about how that foundational narrative can reach uh, uh, people, you know, forming and, and galvanizing a foundational narrative, the other thing I think that's necessary is for us to understand how and why negativity can be so pervasive and how to remove it from our lives. Uh, I've started uh, examining the way that human consciousness works and its relationship to uh, not just our lives and our past traumas, but to things like our five senses, uh, particularly our eyesight. Can things be done to wake us up, to make us uh, use our brains more efficiently, more effectively? Daniel does this with Neurohacker, those nootropic uh, supplements that he's developed, and, and those are fantastic. I take them. Uh, those have helped me think more clearly, <laughs> um, perhaps even uh, figure out ways to be a, a less negative uh, a person. And, and by negative, I mean these kind of strange defaults that exist since childhood that says that I can't do certain things, rules that I set up for myself that are almost arbitrary now that I think about them. If we could figure out how to remove uh, these uh, uh, negative impulses from people, uh, then the possibilities inherent in Plan B become easier to embrace, uh, develop, and execute. Interesting. So uh, in, in part of the great Game B conversation, there's a tension between personal development, I guess I would describe it, and building institutions to help us be better people. Sounds like your suggestion is to start with the personal development side, maybe? I think that's the easier <laughs> of the two because uh, personal development, uh, it's easier for me uh, uh, because I am the poster child for how story uh, uh, can uh, take someone from the Lower East Side, poverty, the projects, <laughs> and despite my last name, <laughs> you know, achieve, uh, you know, a fair modicum of, of success and, and live a life that I could have only dreamt about. 
I couldn't even have dreamed uh, these experiences that I'm having right now. And that is because of story uh, and the impact of story. Maybe a little bit of love here and there, <laughs> but mostly story. <laughs> so, and let's also be honest, both of us you know, had interesting and successful careers. Let's, not also, let's also not disregard the fact that we've also had a lot of luck. <laughs> Maybe you, Jim Rutz. <laughs> I had to fight you the nail for anything. All I ever heard was no. <laughs> you know, and, and it was a kind of fierce determination, a kind of street fighter mentality that, that caused me to, to, to figure out things. Yeah, the, uh, luck comes into play, but you make that luck because I fought against myself. I'm shy. Uh, I had OCD. Uh, all I wanted to do was rock back and forth in my bedroom. <laughs> so uh, it, it was a, a real uh, a fight, a grappling with myself to, to push myself into these uh, social situations uh, that resulted in uh, the luck of meeting certain people or the opportunities uh, that, that happened to come along. So, you know, that's a, uh, I try to teach uh, young people uh, about how luck, you know, don't think about luck because you, you've got to, there's a lot of work to be done in order for luck to come into play. <laughs> I, I say the same thing. Uh, you know, if, if you push against the world hard, your share of luck will probably come your way, plus there or minus a little bit. But but the other part of it is you have to be prepared and fearless and courageous and go with it, right? You know, I still think about the amazing bit of luck I had when I was 26 or 27, but it involved quitting my job. My wife and I both quitting our good jobs, moving to Boston and starting a company with some guy with a story, right? <laughs> and most people thought we were nuts and we did it and it was successful. And that, you know, changed the complete trajectory of our lives. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, because, you know, the luck was meeting this guy at the right time, in the right place. But the other part of it was being, you know, decisive and courageous and willing to follow that opportunity. That's right. That's right. Any final thoughts for the Game B folks as they continue to work together as a you know, ill-defined cloud of people to try to define this future. Uh, an aspect of Game B that I've heard about um, uh, seems to center on e erecting new uh, social media platforms and, and other kinds of communication tools and, and things like that. And I've been more someone to want to leverage the platforms at hand. Um, when When Starlight Runner goes to these movie studios or video game companies and so forth, the first thing that we ask them is, what do you have access to? Uh, for, for the Walt Disney Company, it's everything, <laughs> you know, it, it already. So that's the palette from which we do our work. Uh, so I, I would rather Game B be implemented across uh, established uh, uh, multiple media platforms than uh, take the uh, time, effort, and massive cost to uh, invent the so-called trust platform or, or some other kind of interface or software that could um, make this thing work. I think a lot of the, the people of the world want it to be better and, uh, and will respond if the story is well told. I agree with you. Truthfully, we tried to build our own platform back in 2013, 
And as you would have predicted, it was a whole lot of work and didn't get any traction. Much easier to tell a better story across the platforms uh, that exist. The other part that I push heavily is my doctrine of weak links and strong links. And that is that no matter what platform you're on, most relationships in the online world are inherently weak links. You know, the people that I know only through the internet are generally not people I would, you know, ask to help me out if I got into a jam or as I like to say, you know, a friend is someone that will help you move. A real friend is somebody that will help you move a body, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I doubt you make too many real friends on the internet. So I keep pushing and I think it's being accepted in the game B world that we need to build a tapestry that uses the inexpensive, wide-ranging, weak links to meet people, but then to damn sure make sure that when we can, get together face-to-face mm. and also to build a real face-to-face community where we live. Because, uh, you know, as apes with clothes, uh, we really are all about, you know, being with other humans. Conviviality is the word, I think, that's starting to be used in Game B to describe the fact that what really rings our bell is being with our friends, our family, you know, having food and drink and singing songs and clapping each other on the back and telling jokes and those kinds of things. And I certainly hope that as Game B moves forward, it won't forget you know, the real face-to-face human stuff and overemphasize the network stuff. I'll agree with you, Jim. Don't underestimate uh, the uh, level of intimacy and connection that, that can be possible with the technological interface. As we uh, stumble uh, past augmented and, and virtual reality <laughs> uh, into uh, uh, scenarios where we will, in effect, be able to look into each other's eyes across great distances, I, I believe we can develop uh, strong and powerful uh, relationships move the body kind of <laughs> relationships. And again, we're seeing this with the youngest uh, of the prominent uh, generations. And if and when that's possible, it will be possible to activate uh, very large numbers of them through uh, a passionate storytelling and, um, and, and passionate requests for uh, assistance. Uh, so that uh, while you're seeing these uh, massive movements coalesce and form, and in some cases push things past the tipping point to change, you'll be able to see them uh, uh, do this uh, uh, through work uh, largely online that can bring us uh, closer to the realization of, of Plan B. Um, just leave yourself open to to that uh, possibility because it is it's something that's fascinating that we're uh, we're seeing uh, the seeds of right now. Yeah, that would be interesting. You know, you you probably don't know this about me, but I've been involved with building our online world since 1980. I went to work for the very first company for the that was, had a consumer online service, and so I've been doing you know the many to many online social media we'd call it now for almost 40 years, and and yet. And there are some cases where I have made some relationships that are as good as the real world, but not that often. But it would be interesting if the new tools, uh, and at some point they may be there, can do that. But So I guess I would amend my statement a little bit. 
use weak links to reach lots of people, but build the real thing with strong links. And today that's mostly face-to-face, but perhaps in the future as our technology gets richer and as you say, something beyond augmented reality, maybe brain-to-brain networking, over time, the ability to build strong links could also move into the virtual and we should be open to that and not close our eyes to it. I think it's not too far off, Jim. Uh, uh, that's great. I appreciate the, the, the consideration. Anyway, this has been wonderful. Jeff, this was everything I would hope it would be. Oh, gosh. Absolutely rich and fascinating and wonderful. And uh, we've covered a huge amount of ground, and I'm sure our audience will love it. I look forward to their feedback. They can uh, uh, connect with me through uh, LinkedIn, Jeff Gomez, through Twitter, at Jeff underscore Gomez. Remember the underscore because the other Jeff Gomez is completely pissed at me (laughs) and Facebook um, it's Facebook slash uh, transmedia but you'll find me if you type in uh, Jeff Gomez great well on that note I'm going to sign off and uh, you know uh... production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com